The whole notion that you could think your way out of an emotional response or that you could change your thoughts to affect your emotional responses is just an absolute nonsense. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mentors. Today we have on Charles Linden, the leading expert on anxiety disorder recovery and the first pioneer in providing online therapy and the creator of the famous Linden Method Anxiety Recovery Program. In this episode, we discuss the disorder of fear, which is anxiety, the process to curing yourself, why cognitive therapy, or quote-unquote, talking about it, doesn't help, and emotional equilibrium. This episode was utterly fascinating to me, just from the simple concept that you can cure your anxiety, that you don't have to live with it, or take medications, or deal with the symptoms, that it genuinely can be cured, and you can return to a normal life. And this is especially relevant nowadays, as anxiety rates are going through the roof, especially in younger kids. But what's equally fascinating is that those anxious minds could be flipped and become very creative, deep thinking, and innovative minds. So if it's you or someone you know out there that's struggling with anxiety, I urge you to listen and hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Mentors. Today we have on Charles Linden. Charles, thank you so much for being on. You're very welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be on here with you. And, you know, I'm really excited to have you. The more I dug into you and the more I learned about you, the cooler it all got because, you know, you just debunked the whole uh, misconception that anxiety is an illness and it can't be cured and you can only, um, I guess, how do you say, it? you can only, like, keep it at bay. You're saying you can, we can get, like, completely get rid of it. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, I suffered for um, over 22 years from, I actually started suffering when I was four. So there were 22 years where I was absolutely tied up in um, OCD, anxiety, panic attacks, agoraphobia. I had a metaphobia, which is fear of vomiting. I had um, forms of OCD, um, like HOCD. Um, I, I developed eating disorders. Um, any manifestation of anxiety I had during that time. And when I recovered and I started to understand the true nature, the true science of these, what I call fear disorders, by the way, I don't call them anxiety disorders because to me, anxiety is a disorder. Fear is the emotion. Anxiety is the disorder of that emotion. And so when you recover and you, um, you know cellularly how it feels to suffer, but you also know how to recover, all of these, um, all of the intricacies of the condition and all of the... Um, the protracted experiences, for example, things like IBS or muscle tension and the pains and aches and the dizziness and the obsessive thoughts, everything slips into, almost into silos and it all makes a lot of sense. And so at that point, when I truly understood the true nature of the disorder, of how it forms, who, who is predisposed to getting it, how it forms, how it affects people, and how it can then be cured and removed completely. It just clicked in my head that, you know, millions of people around the world are suffering from these conditions totally unnecessarily, totally unnecessarily. There is nobody on this planet that suffers from a disorder of the emotions who needs to suffer for more than another couple of days, maybe three or four days. You know, it is, it is almost instantly removable as long as you do what your brain and body needs in order to, to repair it. Yeah. And how did you get there? Because I'm going to bet there's a huge jump between being in that horrible of a state and then learning it could be fixed. Like, how did you go from that process of learning to becoming uh, recovered then to helping others? 
It was, it, it happened for me very quickly. I mean, I was taking a whole raft of um, horrible medications. I was taking an antipsychotic, which, which is used in low, uh, low doses to control anxiety. I was taking Prozac and I was taking various types of SSRIs over the years. I was taking Valium, so diazepam, um, a whole concoction of chemicals. And then on top of that, there were the symptoms themselves. And I just, I knew, I, I'd met, despite being told by psychology and medicine that people don't recover, that they learn to cope or manage. Um, I'd met people that had fully recovered. In fact, my aunt was one of them. So I knew that there were people that could go from, I mean, she was hospitalized and heavily medicated. And she'd had electroconvulsive therapy, and it, you know, an awful time in the seventies. Um, but then she was completely normal. So I thought, well, if she can do it, anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. So it was a happy sequence of events that led me to recover really, or to make, to lead me to the point where I understood how to recover. And it was, it was to do with some volunteer work I did. And I won't go into the complexities of it because there was, a, there was a discovery time over two days. But once I realized that actually fear is uh, the emotion and that the disorder of that emotion is anxiety. And if you, if you can pull back the disordered part, you go back to normal fear responses. And that's true of any of emotion, any emotion really, uh, not just fear. Um, you could quickly fix it. So I, within three days, I, day one, I, I was having eight to 10 panic attacks a day. Day one, when I started to implement what I do now for other people, uh, my panic attacks stopped. The derealization and the depersonalization, which is this sort of dreamy feeling and the feeling of being removed from reality, that stopped day one. Um, my OCD took, took a, a dramatic decline on day one. By the end of day two, it was, there was a sense, I'll be honest with you, is that there was a kind of a sense of loss it was almost like um, I'd been living with a um, something, you know, something in a heavy backpack on my back, and somebody lifted it off. Like, suddenly, my body became—I became liberated. My thoughts were clearer. They were, they were racing, and my body seemed to be lighter. And, it, and I, I now realised that it was complete absence of that high-level fear, and that my body was just being how it was meant to be. But because I started suffering when I was four, I had no memory of that. And so when I did start to recover, it snowballed because the better you feel, it's like doing a diet. You know, when you start, it's difficult. But as you see yourself lose weight and look better, you feel more emotionally compelled to carry on. If you, if in a week's time you look no different, you, you kind of forget about it and don't bother. Um, and it was like that. You, you cascade into recovery. And, you know, we've, like, you know, you said like, we've helped 260,000, more than that, 260,000 people. And I've never seen a case that A, couldn't be recovered, couldn't recover, B, has, has not recovered. So in other words, they've done it and it's not worked. Um, and, and I've never seen a case where somebody hasn't felt compelled to do it. They may need a little bit of guidance, and, you know, in between. But, but ultimately, if you do this, it can't fail to work. It is the solution. Yeah, but how do you how do you dismantle that fear? Because I know it has to be something in the subconscious mind. Because mm-hmm. if it's conscious and you're thinking about it, you know, there's a way to redirect the thought. And I feel like that's where a lot of therapy goes wrong. But how do you enter the subconscious and really dig into um, dismantling that fear and that anxiety? Okay, it's, it's really simple, you know, and you're right about the whole thought thing. You know, um, cognitive-based therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy um, assume uh, or make the assumption that thought precedes emotional response. Uh, and there was some research done a long, long time ago um, by, by um, some research um, scientists where they asked a question, which was, do you see a bear and run or do you see a bear think and run? 
So they did a lot of experiments and, and unfortunately they came up with, well, you, you see a bear, then you run. There's no thinking involved. And we've all done this. You know, you're driving along a road, the dog runs out in front of the car, your foot's on the pedal, your foot's on the brake as quick as lightning. There's no thought involved. If thought was involved, it would slow you down. This is totally automatic, autonomic. And so it's, and all of that is produced by your subconscious without any conscious intervention. So that the whole, um, the whole notion that you could think your way out of an emotional response or that you could change your thoughts to affect your emotional responses is just an absolute nonsense. It's like trying to think yourself thin or think yourself fit. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like thinking your digestion to slow down or thinking your heart rate to slow down. This is um, subconscious autonomic stuff that happens without conscious intervention. No amount of thought will fix this or analysis, or anything else you want to talk about. It just isn't going to fix it. So your question was about how, how, what do you do? Your subconscious will only respond to one thing, and that's incoming sensory data. If you put yourself on a treadmill every day for 40 minutes, for six months, you will get fitter. Whether you want to or not is irrelevant. The point is your legs will tell your, your nervous system to send messages to your brain. Your brain will send messages to your heart, lungs, and every other part of your body in order to bring some synergy together between those systems to make you faster and stronger. You will become a better runner. You can't stop yourself. And you can challenge yourself. It's, it's like eating less, exercising more, and trying not to lose weight. Your body will do it automatically. So the input mechanism is the senses for everything. Any data that we've ever learned, any new behaviors at school, A, 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 movement of the hand and repetition, that's mm-hmm. what we're able to write. Reading, moving your eyes across letters that you recognize because you've learned to read and write. You know, it's just all about movement, it's all about doing. And so the way that you remove any unwanted, disordered parts of emotional response is you send in the correct data. And the, and the data reaches the subconscious and the subconscious goes, hmm, Now, given the weight of the data that I'm receiving, should I be anxious or non-anxious? Should I be frightened or non-frightened? Should I be hot, should I be cold? Whatever the question is, and your brain's constantly doing these these mental sort of uh, decision-making, constantly, but it's all from data through your senses. So when you can send the correct data where your brain says, do you know what, no, I don't need this level of fear, it notches it down and then it notches it down again and it keeps retesting your environment to see whether there's anything that you should be frightened of and anything appropriate and real and if there isn't it notches it down but in anxiety conditions you've also got the complexities of the symptoms that these conditions cause and of course your brain can go to well my heart's racing that could be something threatening and then you respond with fear to that and that could become panic disorder or agoraphobia or OCD if it's uh, what if I get contamination? What if I uh, what if I die from contamination? You could develop OCD. If it's you know what if I I don't know um, have a panic attack on the on the on the high street, um, that becomes agoraphobia and so on. So the subject matter changes, but the disorder is only defined by the subject matter, by the by the anxious focus, whether that's contamination or distance from home or vomit or uh, dying or passing out or food. That's what makes those categories of conditions. The, dis- the core disorder is the same in every case. And when you get rid of the core, you're going to get rid of everything else. It's like getting rid of the flu. You yeah. know, you get rid of the flu, the snotty nose, the runny eyes, the coffee chest, you know, the hot flushes, they're going to go. But is it a system of, 
because uh, like you said, especially with emotions, they're so much more faster than our conscious. You know, if you if you you know think about breaking the pedal, then you break the pedal. You you're gonna hit the dog. Um, mm -hmm. How do you pull yourself back from the moment and have and evaluate like is this a threat? And you go, let's think logically. It's not, mm -hmm. and then things and things disappear, especially with chronic um, anxiety. And that's the, that. This is key. Um, it's not about thought. In fact, you know, what we say to our clients is switch thought off. Thought is bad. And it is. You know, think about this logically in, in, in the sense of um, social evolution. You know, what, what is communication for? What is talk for? Talk is for communicating the, the details that keep us alive. You know, there's a social aspect to talk. Of course there is, because we're social animals. We're great apes. We've evolved socially to be able to interact at a, at a you know, hopefully most of the time at a, at a higher level than most apes. Um, that's not true of everybody. Um, but, but ultimately, we are great apes. And so communication was about, pass me that tool. Are you hungry? Are you cold? Survival, you know? It was never really about, you know, how's my hair doing today? What colors my blouse? Or it was never about that really. And so what we've done, we've evolved to believe that uh, a problem shared is a problem halved. And actually, the truth is that there are a lot of people having talking style therapies going for to group counseling, going for counseling sessions. And every time they go, they just reopen the wound. All they do is they pull that negative emotion back out again. And then, and then they leave the session, feel emotionally drained and, and potentially worse than they went in. Uh, or maybe slightly relieved. Maybe it's you know the, the, the counselor might have said you know well the lump in your throat isn't isn't um, you know isn't throat cancer it's it's globus hystericus it's because you're anxious and their levels of anxiety come down and then they feel compelled to go to the next one because it's nice to go because it makes them feel reassured but ultimately between the sessions their anxiety comes back up again and that's true with any talking style therapy talking isn't always good there are times when talking is very very bad um, because it reactivates those thoughts and those emotions. Um, the emotions that your body is trying to suppress. It's trying to forget that you're anxious. It doesn't want to be reminded. So it's, it is, it, and, you, and you've got to be careful because I mean, I, I get, I totally get where you're coming from. You know, so, you know, the question is how do you, so how do you, what do you say to yourself and what do you do in the moment to reduce your fear, to, to kind of analyze the situation and to, and to um, in some way, um, undermine the fear that you're feeling you've got to remember it's not fear we're talking about anxiety we're talking about false fear it doesn't need confirmation that it should be there it just is because you're systemically set to be fearful it's a disorder of fear it isn't fear about anything it isn't fear because of anything it's just fear you're just fearful and that's because you have a disorder is that is does that manifest in certain people because before we recorded you're talking about you can predetermine or you can pre-see like you know this soldier is going to like develop ptsd um mm -hmm. how do you like how do you see the manifestations then how do you prevent it beforehand you you uh, and i'm sure you have this experience and most people have you know a lot of people that work in mental health have said to me you know well why do they suffer but i don't why 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 does my sister suffer but i don't why does my brother sister suffer why does my mother suffer but i don't and that's because those people have got the predisposition to suffering. It's a genetic predisposition. It's the kind of it's a kind of brain, and it's and it's connected to uh, emotional intelligence. So it's the part of, of your brain that's responsible for um, thought outside of the. Pra you know, there are some people that are just very practical. They just get on with their lives. They do their jobs. They earn money. They eat. They sleep. They procreate, and then they die. You know, they kind of live their life like that. 
yeah? And then there are people, a little bit more like me and you maybe, who have uh, a greater range of thought, who are constantly looking for ways to troubleshoot and solve problems. Those are the people that have the predisposition. Wow. And so when people say to me, you know, why do I suffer? I suffer, I say, you suffer because you're great. Now let's fix the problem. Because they think that they're frail and vulnerable and weak and ill. But actually the truth of it is they're incredible. And that's, that's the starting point for all of this. Wow. No. One second. Like that's, that makes so much sense. That makes, oh, that makes so much sense. I mean, because when you have a great mind and I'm going to bet it's a very active mind. I feel like I'm very active mind. You have a very active mind, but it's activity on where it's, you know, stationed. Is it, you know, active and in, in fear and the anxiety, or is it active in creativity and thought and divert, you know, um, but it all depends on where it goes. Is, is there, you know, where's the wrong turning point? You know, where's the difference? If you're born with that predisposition, if you're born with the genetic ability to suffer, which is the cause, you know how people say all the time, you can see it in media, um, well, the cause of this, um, this rise in anxiety is terrorism. The cause is, you know, um, money worries. It's, the, it's, you know, domestic threat, it's non-domestic threat, it's war, it's this. No, those aren't the causes. These are the catalysts for fear responses. And there are millions of them. Divorce, money worries, your cat dying, it doesn't matter. Anything can activate fear in the, under the right circumstances. Those, those things aren't the cause, they are the catalysts. The cause is the ability to suffer. So instead of treating the catalyst, which is what most people do in therapies, uh, and then medicating as well to, to, to move people along, um, what we do is we address the cause. So we fix the predisposition to suffering. And that's the massive difference. And that's why what we do is, is, is psychoeducational rather than psychological, in that we teach people a process, a method to do, uh, that um, sends the correct messages to the subconscious mind and the subconscious mind says don't need this and switches it off oh, wow. um, it's it's very very simple but you have to you know of all the, and, and, the, and the biggest problem you see is that obviously through social evolution more and more people are, are being born with that predisposition because society is changing as you as you know it's becoming more sophisticated and higher level in terms of data um, and that's what's happening and, and so People say to me all the time, well, why are there so many kids suffering in schools now? You know, why are they so scared? And I always say, well, it's, it's, evil. it's human evolution coupled with, it's human social evolution not aligning with human physical evolution. And it's that misalignment that is causing this. Um, but it isn't all of those things that people blame. It just isn't. Yeah, because well, if you make, um, especially because, you know, a lot of us kids, we spend our time in school. Maybe like if you change the school to be more of that positive, creative outlet of, hey, I know you're afraid about, you know, what's going to happen in the world. Let's genuinely prepare you. That's mm -hmm. actually a big fear for a lot of kids. I mean, if you ask them about their future, they don't want to talk about it because right. it could definitely send them into just a down spiral of thought of like, I, I'm nothing. Yeah. I don't mean anything. But the overactive thought is a can be amazing actually a couple days ago uh, my dad was reading some news articles and he's like oh great we're at the all-time high for anxiety it's amazing yeah but at the same time you could equally be at the all-time high for innovation and creativity totally totally and, and, and that is the point you know it's 
for me, I mean, I, I spoke at a, a live sort of video feed um, uh, to the Isle of Man some time ago to, to a couple of hundred people who were just interested. They're mostly doctors and, and there were some um, physiotherapists because it was to do with pain management there. And, and, and this question came up and I said, the thing is this, you know, you can either, um, you know, admit that the uh, mental health services are failing, that the people who should know have no answers and they are failing the patients left, right and centre, and, and, and increasingly so. Um, or you can do something about it and you can fix the problem from the ground up. And, and the problem isn't fixed by looking at social media, the impact of um, social stress, you know, the relationships between kids. You know, there's a huge amount now, obviously. I mean, I've got, I've got this thing about um, devices and about um, social media because from, from, a, uh, from a neurological perspective, they are so, so, so damaging. They really are. There's a, there's a much more productive way to for kids to interact and um, and therefore carry good mental health into adulthood. Um, but the point is that if you have somebody, people say to me all the time, "Oh, my stress, my job's really stressing me out. I'm I'm having panic attacks. I'm not sleeping." And I say, "But the thing is, it's not the job's fault." It's your fault because if you were in emotional balance, if you were zeroed so that you were at uh, your birth preset emotional responses and it, it, in equilibrium and all of your bodily systems are working in synergy to maintain that wellness you had at birth. Let's assume somebody has total wellness at birth. There are people that don't. Um, uh, but if you could get back to that, you would deal with the work stress. You would deal with all of these hassle, hassles and issues you've got in your life far more appropriately in emotional equilibrium, but you're not in emotional equilibrium. You know, you go out on a Friday night, you have 10 beers, then you might go for an Indian curry, and then on Saturday night, you know, so you don't sleep, and then you wake up Saturday tired, and then Saturday night, you might go out and, and play a couple of games of, of squash, and you, you know, your body's in this turmoil, emotional and therefore chemical turmoil, and then Sunday comes and you sleep in, so you stay, you stay in bed till two, because you think that's the right thing to do. You get up, you have a late lunch, and then by the time you go to bed, your body's still digesting the food. And then you wake up Monday morning and think, why do I feel so ill? Well, you feel ill because what you've done to your body over the weekend is massively detrimental in terms of your balance. Yeah. So if you can pull people back, if you can start their days, kids, adults, it doesn't matter. If they can start their days in balance, or as close as they can get to that balance, they will respond to their environment far more appropriately. And that goes for work stress, it goes for you know, the stresses of, of dealing with mental health issues and with um, you know, any conflicts you've got through social media. You know, kids are suffering because they don't know how to be in balance. How, um, do you, how do you find yourself in balance? How do you start the day with balance and maintain that? Well, you know, I, 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 I'm a funny creature, really, because I'm quite, um, I'm quite controlled. I, and so I know what makes me feel good and what makes me feel bad. And so I don't do those things that make me feel bad. Um, sometimes I have to do them by default. You know, I have to fly through the night or I have to, you know, go to get up at four in the morning to go to a meeting. You can't avoid those. But if those are the only um, negative contributing factors, your body and brain will deal with them more effectively. Um, it's all about endocrine balance. It's about eating the, the right amount of food for you at the right times. It's about um, making sure you get enough fluids, enough sleep, enough exercise. It's about being a human and, and being a human that, that evolution has meant you to be. You know, evolution does not mean for us to sit at desks for 10 hours. It does not mean for us to stare at screens for 10 hours. It doesn't mean for us to do all the things that we do 
that are so dramatically, I mean, I'm sat here now talking to you, and as I'm talking, you know, my, my diaphragm isn't dropping because I'm sat on a chair talking to you, humped over, over, you know, my breathing is compromised, my heart is compromised, my circulation is compromised, the back of my legs are pressing against my chair. You know, there's nothing good about my posture or my sitting. And you'd think my posture is good because I'm fairly upright, but actually my body needs to be up and walking, or at least in a position that makes it flourish, neurologically and physiologically. People don't realize the impact of the simple things that they do very badly in their lives. You know, and, and, and I use this analogy at the retreat, you know, I could eat a peanut now and be absolutely fine. There are people that can't even look at a peanut without going into anaphylactic shock. You know, you can never ever, um, what's the word, you can never pre, uh, pre-know what something's going to do to you until it does it. You could drink a glass of cider today and be fine, tomorrow you could drink it and get alcohol poisoning. Your body, you can't ever synchronize with the way you're going to react. There are so many people walking around that get migraines or they feel achy or their knees hurt or they're not sleeping properly. And it's probably because they're eating too many croissants or, you know, um, maybe they're you know, allergic to, to gluten or, or because, the, you know, the air conditioner is feeding the wrong kind of air into their office. But they assume that it's illness and then they become, you know, introverted and introspective about that and that lowers their mood and they go to the doctors and the doctors say, well, I think you've got a bit of stress and anxiety or a bit of depression. So they give you tablets. So now not only have you got those social issues, you've also got the medication and that's changing you systemically and your endocrine system is, is trying to clean out these chemicals and clean out and it's a downward spiral, you know? Yeah. Purity is where it's at. You've got to get as close as you can back to that purity. And off that level playing field, you can then play the game of life effectively. And it's the same for, you cannot, there, there is no, no uh, field of medical or psychological care in the world that will work unless a person is in equilibrium before they start the process. You've got to be. How do you... Well, first off, that makes that makes a lot of sense, having that purity, having that balance, right? I mean, again, I've had my own experiences with going, like, seeing a counselor for a little bit, and you're totally right. It, would, it only left me feeling worse, and then I started to realize I shouldn't be talking to a counselor because every time I just bring up what's bad, and this doesn't help, you know, this never is good. Mm-hmm. So then I stop going, and, you know, suddenly you get better because you're not thinking about it. Because- but, you know, if you, want, if you want to have fun, if you want to laugh, you watch a funny film or you go to a comedy club, you don't go to a funeral, you know? You, what we expose ourselves to gives rise to emotional response. It's as simple as that. I mean, that's the way it works, and it is so simple. Um, but people ignore it. Yeah, but, but at the same time, um, when you get to that balance and that purity, um, do you know Jordan Peterson? Yes, I know the name, yeah. Yeah, the crazy thing is, is he has this weird diet. I mean, for the, for the past almost all of his life, Um, I think since the age of seven or four, maybe like you, he had chronic depression, Mm -hmm. chronic, awful depression, always like an impending sense of doom. Yeah. Um, And he had, and his wife was, had a really bad autoimmune disease. And of course, when they had a kid, they had a kid with, you know, you know, chronic depression and a horrible autoimmune disease. Um, And the more and more she lived and she couldn't stay awake for, you know, for like six hours with a tunnel of Ritalin. And it was just awful. And her joints just wouldn't function correctly. You know, I guess they just disintegrated. She started to think like, maybe it's my diet. Mm -hmm. And she reverses the whole process. And I mean, turns out the only thing she can eat and same with her mom and dad, Jordan Peterson, they can only eat meat, steak, beef. And that's it. And that's, and that's like, and that's the purity for them. And they, you know, they, 
lost the weight and they became happier and yeah. you know there was no impending sense of doom but equally you have that vegan movement and mm-hmm. a lot of people say well this makes me just feel alive and feel so much better because i'm eating healthy mm-hmm. so obviously i guess purity is on different levels for a ton of people is it there is. something you have to do with your clients to find their not level of purity but their form of purity um and build from that yeah yeah i mean there, there's like a troubleshooting exercise so you know the, initially what people are asked to do is find their balance and, and and what that means in their life now look i'm not advocating if somebody smokes 20 cigarettes a day and drinks uh, <coughs> four glasses of wine <coughs> excuse me um four glasses of wine a night and if somebody i mean we even had one guy that had a cocaine habit and he said to, you know he said to me like we drink and smoke would you asking me to give up drinking smoking and my my, my drugs and I say, and I say no I'm not asking you to do that what I'm asking you to do is take out the mystery take out the mystery when your body responds it responds in a way that you can't control so if you know that you're going to smoke 20 cigarettes a day maybe knock it down to 16 and have one every hour so at least your body and mind know what to expect every hour it's going to get x amount of nicotine and an x amount of tar and x amount of stimulant and that's going to do this to your body but if you smoke eight cigarettes at breakfast eight at lunchtime and eight at night you're doing something different you're you're, you're making those peaks of physiological response and chemical response very very high and of course the, the opposite to a peak is a trough and then you suddenly get this this trough this total lack of those things and your body goes into kind of it, it can it can actually activate anxiety and panic because your body goes into that self defense mode defense mode to so activate fight or flight um so if you what you do is you do little and often of whatever it is whether it's exercise or you know carbohydrates or anything that is extreme anything that your body has to cope with at a higher level you just have to give it a softer way for and that's how we start the program we tell people to do that and then off that we build recovery um is that a right. beginning way is that a beginning way to enter the subconscious it's it's a way of preparing you physically for recovery you know because you do have to take responsibility for this some people say well i've been doing your program and it hasn't worked for me and i say well okay <laughs> so you're either not human or you're not doing it i'm not sure which it is um because if you're human and you do this you can't not recover that's the point it's like eating to cure hunger you know it just does that's the way the human body works and and you know when people say to me well i've been doing it perfectly and it's not it's failed when you actually look at what they've been doing because recovery is actually very much simpler it's much simpler to do recovery well than it is to do it badly if you do it do it badly you have to work at it if you do it well it's a natural process um there are so many things like that you know um i mean drinking and smoking themselves you know are difficult things to do you know people say i feel happy when i'm drinking yet yeah, you feel happy for a time but the effort you have to put into drinking you have to pay for it you have to go and get it you have to actually consume it and then you've got the after effects of it there's a lot of effort and a lot of discomfort involved in just having a few drinks to feel happy for 20 minutes it's a lot easier to get back to emotional equilibrium um and you can do it so fast that you'll never look at another drink you know it's Well, because a lot of people think that that's the that's the crutch you know mm-hmm. it's with i mean i even know and maybe work is a you know work is a good thing but even like having the workaholics where well if i just keep you know on this grind or if i keep doing this something you know i'll mm-hmm. feel better about myself but mm-hmm. it's really never that you know yeah. it's always just surface things and again even with like the drinking and drugs things a lot of people think well this makes me feel, makes me feel so much better but yeah. i mean yeah. honestly i know a ton of people that like 
you know, they had their first drink and they're like, oh, this is gross. But then after a while, they're kind of, you know, pressured into it. They're at a party or something. And, yeah. they, and then they start to drink and then they go, well, this isn't too bad. And then it's just a tiny high over, again, that long-term high. Yeah, yeah. The annoying thing about they're adjusting their endocrine system to respond differently to the alcohol. So over time, obviously, day one, two beers and they're, and they're vomiting. You know, day, day 30, um, they can have 10 beers without vomiting. You know, what they're doing is they're not acclimatizing themselves to the alcohol. What they're doing is they're forcing their body to change the way the body actually um, uh, utilizes those and, and obviously excretes those chemicals in a different way. So what they're doing is getting their body to work harder. And that's true of anything, not just substances. It's data as well. You know, you yeah. put too much data in and you get overload because your brain only has so much capacity. Is um, that what happens with anxiety? Like you kind of force yourself into this state of, of fear? Kind of, yeah, but, but don't forget, you know, some people, it, it takes a long time to, de to, to, to develop an anxiety condition, a fear disorder for some people. For other people, it can be instantaneous. You know, if somebody out of the blue has a panic, they have the predisposition, but they've never really felt anxious. They've been maybe slightly timid or socially uncomfortable, but they've never really identified as anxious. And then suddenly they have to do a speech and they have a huge panic attack, and that activates panic disorder. Where did this come from? Why is this? Oh, it's because I'm stressed, because my marriage isn't good, or because I'm not earning enough money. You know, they allocate blame to anything, and then of course they go to counselling. They, they have medication, and counselling is all about assigning blame, and then talking about those things. You know, it just becomes like a, a thick broth or a soup of of, of of symptoms and medications and data and and and, and all of those things interact to create this horrible maelstrom of this storm of of um, you know of unending symptoms and thoughts and, and it's hard to get out of that because when you're in it you know you, to find a way out is almost impossible and, and and of course that's where we come in because we we take all that away you know it's yeah. it's very very simple and i mean i work with a lot of um uh, corporate clients i do some consultancy work as well as doing programs for for corporates so corporates will come to me and say oh we've got a huge problem with absenteeism and i'll look at the absenteeism and you can guarantee that Pretty much all of it is anxiety or stress, in inverted commas. Um, and when you actually see these working environments and what they're doing, it's so easy to fix. These people aren't, these people are incredibly resourceful humans that have been pushed, you know, like a square peg into a round hole. Uh, and it's just that the hole has burst because they were never meant to be fitted in there. So you slightly change things uh, about the way they work, about their environment, and about their, their mindset. Uh, and their understanding of their condition. And suddenly you've got all of this resource back very quickly. And people don't need time off work. Yeah, what is that process of, well, because I have two questions, because one I just have to ask, like, how does the medical field, you know, feel about you? But then what is that process of recovery, that process of fixing it look like mm -hmm. in those two, three days? Yeah. Um, okay, answer your first question. Um, how do people respond to us? We have increasing numbers, because we fall outside of psychology and medicine, because we're in psychoeducation, um, we, uh, we're not contested now. When we first started and we were a self-help methodology, we've always had our, developed our programs to be administered by um, psychologists, counselors and psychotherapists who are trained to communicate information and to educate. And so we've always used those people. So we always had a little bit of a problem with people working in medicine and psychology who say, well, wait a minute, what are you doing? What is this program? Why are you doing it? Why does it work? Where, what have you done with my clients very often? Which is kind of shocking. 
uh, you know, they, they were, we were making $80 a week out of that guy and he's gone, where have you put him? Well, he's back at work and he's back with his wife and he's happy, <laughs> you know. Oh my so, gosh. <laughs> and they don't like this, you know. I mean, obviously people are very protective of their... Well, they're uh, losing money. Exactly. So, and, and I understand that, I get it. I, I don't sympathize, but I get it. Um, and so then you've got all these people that work in, um, you know, over here especially, you've got obviously um, privatized healthcare, and then you've also got um, the NHS, the National Health Service, which is provided by the government to everybody that needs it. And But you've got practices out there that are letting people down, they're not making sense, uh, people are having successions of something and then being thrown out because you can't have any more. There are a lot of very, very frustrated, very anxious people out there that have had everything that healthcare, private and uh, nationalised or, uh, or, you know, or, or um, uh, NHS can throw at them. And they are worse, they're no better, but they're often worse than they were to start with. And so what we do is met with uh, a, a mixed bag of responses. It depends how well meaning, meaning the person is. If, if you have a practitioner who, we have a lot of referrals from NHS and private care. We have a lot of um, clinics that deal with mental health who know that they can't fix these people and they refer people to us. A lot of general practitioners working in general practice out there for the NHS and private send people to us. But then you've got this group of people who go, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't right. But we, in this country, you know, um, psychoeducational um, recovery, uh, we're the only people that do psychoeducational. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but we were the first ever online facility for counselling and psychotherapy. Yeah, I learned and, that through research, yeah, yeah. And so we have a kind of reputation by history, and we've helped a lot of people over many, many years. And so that has helped us to crack through that barrier of, um, of objection uh, to an extent. But even so, and of course, psychoeducational care is over here is accepted by the um, by NICE, which is the um, Clinical Excellence Organization. And so whilst we are conventional, accepted, uh, and, and my staff are very highly qualified and experienced, there is some resistance, but it's more resistance to recovery than it is to us. Some people don't like recovery. They, their, their, their business models, their lifestyles and everything depend on people suffering. Um, and so when you, you know, when you say to somebody, if you take 100 clients and cure 100 clients, whereas somebody else would take 100 clients and live off them for six years, you know, you're going to get resistance. And, that, and that's what happens to us. It's not good. Well, I mean, as, as horrible as that reality is, it's equally understandable. So mm -hmm. just, I mean, you're basically taking away their live work, even though their live work is to facilitate and allow suffering to reoccur. And yeah. again, like you said, it's the exact same thing with the alcohol or the drugs. It's just that, you know, temporary shot of, you know, happiness of, oh, maybe I am getting better. Maybe mm -hmm. my relationships are working out. Maybe everything feels like really nice right now. Yeah. But at the end, it'll all crash. But how do you, how do you enter that subconscious mind um, to, to allow that balance, to allow that long-term happiness and sustainability? Well, I mean, we talked about creating balance, first of all, which is the foundation of all well-being. But on top of that, we what we've done over the years, and, and it's I, I'm not going to go into too, too deep, and the reason for that is very simple, because I don't want people to misinterpret any aspect of this. Okay. All people need to know is that if you do this and you're human and anxious, you'll come out non-anxious. You know, that's the key message. How you do it, 
is a combination. It's a it's a it's a multifaceted approach. You know, when um, say for example, if you went to some kind of um, keep fit session and you were there dancing away, and there's an instructor and they're telling you what moves to make, um, and you, as young as you are, are stood next to a 70 year old trying to do the same thing, what the instructor would say is, okay, I realise you're 70. You're not going to be able to do this as effectively as the one next to you. Um, so uh, what we're going to do is mod we're going to add modifiers. We're going to modify this particular movement and this particular exercise for you at your age. It's going to be as effective, but you're going to have to do it more times. Okay. And so what the, the point I'm trying to make and the analogy I'm trying to build is that the method, if you like, is uh, its core is the same for all people, but its application is different for all people. And so over the years, over 22 or 23 years now of doing this, we've added modifiers. And from the start, when it was a sheet of paper I'd give to people, it's now become this, um, this kind of entire online resource, videos, audios, and written material, and the support. And all of those things combine to give you the process, to A, a to give you the knowledge, mm -hmm. B, to give you the reassurance of what it actually is, rather than what you think it is. Um, then it gives you structure, then it gives you um, compliance. So you're asked to comply. You're asked to do what we tell you to do, which is a hell of a lot easier than doing what you think you should be doing or what you have been doing. And then on top of that, obviously, there's support. And so if you're doing something and it isn't feeling like it's working or you've got some kind of event coming up and you just think, I'm going to have a meltdown, I need some advice, the support is there to say, no, actually, think of it this way. Let's reverse that. Look at it like this. And so those, those elements are different for every person. So how you put it together is different for every person. But the elements, they're the same elements, but they're combined differently. And that, that's how the method works. It basically lines up all of the ducts, physiological, psychological, um, you know, sociological, and it lines up all those ducts so that you can shoot them down one at a time, rather than randomly just shooting away crazily, um, because you know you're gonna miss. So it's, it's, it's very structured but it makes complete sense. And, and, and most people that do the program, whether it's the retreats, the workshops, the, you know, the corporate workshops or the, or the method online, most people turn around and they say, oh my God, what, what was I thinking? You know, this is just such common sense. But no, so simple. The biggest things that I've realized in my life sometimes are the most commonsensical things yeah. out there. Because yeah, yeah. they're always so overlooked. But, yeah. you know, Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Where can everyone find you? Where can everyone find your work and um, the services you provide? Um, okay. Well, I mean, the easiest way is through one of our websites, and, the, and our main website is thelindencenter.org. Now, I have to stress here: center is spelled the English way rather than the American way, so it's re at the end of center rather than er. Um, but thelindencenter.org. But if you just Google my name, Charles Linden, or the Linden Method, you'll come up with one of our websites at the top of the results. Um, people can find us that way or you can come onto Facebook and I've got a page on Facebook I've just started a group on Facebook called All About Anxiety with Charles Linden you can contact us through that I play a huge role in the organisation and most people in my position wouldn't but I'm very open and very um, accessible because I'm uh, passionate about what I do and I want the time to come where every single human on this planet gets access to this because it, it is the solution you know I've never seen it fail I mean, that's incredible. That's incredible itself. And, and again, thank you so much for, I mean, all of the horrible experience you've, experiences you've had in order to get you to where you are today and helping out thousands upon thousands of people. It really is 
such an amazing feat and and I've seen and I've read a lot of testimonies online about your service and what it does for people and the and just the sheer joy you can just hear out of the words or actually listen to them yeah is you won't just, find that anywhere else you know genuinely you won't find that anywhere else you, you can scour the earth you will not find such a huge thousands and thousands of people who say that we've created recovery in their lives that just isn't anywhere else yeah so if there's anyone listening that genuinely needs this help please check these things out it's well worth your while hey guys i really hope you enjoyed that conversation if you like what we're doing please help us grow by sharing our content and if you have any recommendation for future guests, please email me at agwetrick at gmail.com.